You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Last week, as we began our journey through the Gospel of John, looking at verses 1 to 5 in chapter 1, we talked about it as the first few sentences in a story. And so we talked about the importance of the initial sentences that occur in a story. They are the the literary device by which the author grabs your attention. They draw you in. And they do more than just kind of shock and awe, but they also begin to paint, even from the first letters, kind of the context of the story that you're entering into. Maybe they even introduce some of the main characters of the story, and we saw how John, writing the story of Jesus, does just that. But John and the Gospel of John is not just a story. It's also a letter written with an incredibly important purpose at hand. You know, before I entered into ministry, most of my career was spent working for the Department of Homeland Security, and early on, um, my position was that of an analyst. And so we were working with an organization within the Department of Homeland Security that did critical infrastructure protection. And so we, we assisted in ensuring that everything from electrical grids to hydroelectric dams to big mass gathering venues like stadiums were well protected and supported. And so whenever there was a potential threat, whether it was some sort of, you know, natural disaster that might occur, or if there was a human threat, we would oftentimes be tasked with writing up some sort of document that outlined the extent of the threat, the extent of the potential consequences. Now, when I started writing these documents, I wrote them much like I had written papers in undergrad and grad school. And so they were long, they were lengthy. I mean, the more words, the better, right? Because you had to, you know, meet the word count in college in order to get the grade. And so sometimes you repeat a paragraph here or there, a couple extra sentences that make, you know, like a two-sentence paragraph into a six-sentence paragraph. And, and I remember getting my initial papers back just with just huge, like they weren't red pen marks. They were like red paintbrushes over entire just pages that I had written. And I was told very early on, you have to be succinct and you have to tell them what you need to tell them quickly. We used a phrase called bluff, bottom line up front. Maybe some of you guys have used that before, but the theory was this. We're giving these papers to really important people that don't have much time, and so if all they have is the time from floor one to floor five in an elevator, you need to be able to communicate the importance of your document and what it is they need to walk away with in just a few sentences. Right? Perhaps maybe you guys remember when we learned to write essays, those five-paragraph essays, which I was, always thought was the only type of written communication that existed after elementary school. I didn't know it was possible to have six or seven-paragraph essays. Okay? But I remember this formula when we learned five-paragraph essays. The first paragraph, right, which is called what? The introduction. In the introduction, you tell them what you're going to tell them. And then there are always three paragraphs that follow the introduction, in which case you do what? You tell them. And then you have your final paragraph called the conclusion. And what do you do there? You tell them what you told them. Do we have any English teachers here? 
listen, I can see our English teacher beaming with pride right now, all right? And I think also a little stress just melted off thinking, maybe my job won't be as terribly difficult with your children as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, you tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. John is writing with a distinct purpose in mind. And he does the exact same thing as we were taught in elementary school. Here in John chapter 1, he tells us what he's going to tell us. And then he spends the rest of chapter 1 all the way through John chapter 19 telling us the story, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And then in John 20, probably the most succinct statement, he tells us what he's told us. And here's what he says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, this gospel, these words, these verses are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John's mission, the entire point of the Gospel of John, is to tell his readers, which includes us, who Jesus truly is. We have three discipleship statements that we use here at Mercy's Door. What it looks like to be a disciple who makes a disciple. Knowing Christ, believing the Gospel, and loving people. John tells us the whole mission of this Gospel is so that we would know Christ. Not just know about Him, but intimately know the truth of who He is and what He has done. And why does He want us to know Christ? John goes on, that by believing, you may have life in His name. John's mission is to tell us who Christ really is, so that though and by knowing Christ, we would have eternal, or as John also calls it, abundant life. And he tells us up front in the first five verses exactly who he will reveal Christ to be in this gospel. He tells us that Jesus, one, is the Word. Two, he tells us that Jesus is God. And three, he tells us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. This is what we're going to look at today. One, Jesus is the Word. Two, Jesus is God. And three, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Now this entire passage, this entire sermon hinges on a doctrine that we call progressive revelation. I promise I'm not getting into the weeds or theological statements for no good reason, but I need you guys to hear this. Progressive revelation, all right, is a doctrine that teaches that God has revealed Himself and His will through the Scriptures with increasing clarity as more and more of the Scriptures were written. It says that God has revealed Himself and His will with increasing clarity as more and more of the Scriptures were written. Think of it this way. If you guys have ever gone to an eye doctor appointment, they put you behind those glasses and they have these little filters and they do the one, two, two, three, three, four. And the whole time you're like, are you just playing a game with me? Because I don't see any difference. Right? But the theory behind this is that as you choose these little filters, the, the, the words, the letters on the back of the wall will get increasingly 
clear. The letters are always there. And theoretically, your vision should get better and better and better. But only once they find the correct lens do you see it fully, totally, and clearly. And God, through His Holy Scripture, beginning, in the beginning, in Genesis, has been slowly making Himself known to us. Everything that He has ever revealed has always been true, but as He continued to reveal Himself in the Scriptures, we saw Him. We saw who He was and what He was doing with increasing clarity. Augustine, a church father, said in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. It's there, but it's hidden. But in the New Testament, the Old is revealed. Or the Lord Himself, through the authors of Hebrews, says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. This might be hard to get your your brain around, but this is a a weighty, heavy sermon. And what I need you to hear is as we talk through some of the aspects of who Jesus is, it's going to feel like I just like pulled a coin out of my ear. Something that was at one point in time not there is magically there. And what I want you to hear is that God is unchangeable, immutable. His words are always true. But when He spoke in the Old Testament by the prophets, He was only revealing certain aspects of Himself, but that has come to fruition in Christ Jesus. The fullness of who God is is seen in Jesus. Now again, this isn't meant to be a dry doctrine or truth. This is actually meant to lead us to worship. There was a movie that I used to watch. I haven't seen it in a long time called Big Fish. Anybody seen that movie before? Okay, good. Like seven people. And I got to actually get it correct. All right. So this movie, it follows the story of a father who is dying in his old age. And as he's dying, he is recounting the story of his life. And he's always told the story of his life in these really fantastical ways. Larger than life. And he's always claimed that all of these fantastical truths were utterly true. And at one point in time in the story, he's telling the story of how he met his wife. And the story goes that he's at a circus one day and he he gazes across the room and he sees this, this woman who just glows right the most beautiful woman in the world the the woman he immediately knows he's destined to be with but then the circus ends and she leaves and he doesn't know who she is or where she is or anything else well eventually edward the main character he has a conversation with the the ringmaster the owner of the circus and he says do you know who this girl is and he describes her and the ringmaster says i know i know who she is and he says tell me about her And the ringmaster, who's a little cunning and a little evil, says, I will tell you. I will tell you one piece of information every month that you work for me. And so he begins to work for this ringmaster, and he does these dangerous, terrible jobs, like stick his head inside of the mouth of a lion. And at the end of the first month, he goes to him and he says, tell me about her. And he goes, are you ready? And he goes, 
She likes daffodils. I'm like, what? That doesn't help. But Edward's response is, she likes daffodils. And he works another month with crazy jobs, and he goes back, and he goes, tell me about her. And he goes, she goes to college. And he's like, oh, of course she goes to college. And then another month, and she likes music, which I'm like, who doesn't like music, right? But he's like, oh, she likes music. And he's overwhelmed as he gets to know these bits and pieces until one day he is overjoyed by learning her very name and then he meets her face to face. Progressive revelation, this this dry and dusty theoretical doctrine, it's meant to be for us these aspects of learning just a bit about the love of our life, about the creator of the universe, the most beautiful one until John finally here in his gospel takes us by the hand, tells us his name, and introduces us face to face with God Almighty here in human flesh, Jesus Christ. This is what we're doing here in the gospel of John. This is not theoretical. This is meant to overwhelm us and lead us to Worship. So let's see who John introduces to us. First, John tells us that Jesus is the Word. He says in verse 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John begins his gospel without using the name of Jesus at all. Uh, As a matter of fact, it doesn't occur for the first time until verse 14, and that's kind of in like an aside that he writes. And he doesn't tell us that Jesus is this word until down in verse 29 when John the Baptist declares that Jesus is this wonderful, saving one that has come. So why does John use this title word and what is he trying to say to us? Well, John is combining two concepts into one in order to try and capture the fullness of the glory of Jesus and, and I'll just tell you up front, John does this a lot. I, I told you last week that I kind of struggle sometimes to connect with the Gospel of John because he's so poetic and non-linear. But I think one of the reasons John is so poetic is that John has seen Jesus. Like John was on the mountaintop when Jesus was transfigured. John saw Jesus on the cross. John saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw Him ascend to the right hand of the Father. John knows Jesus. And in John knowing Jesus, it's as if John is saying, I can just imagine him writing and just writing like, just in the beginning was Jesus. Yeah, but they don't, they don't know the fullness of what that means. In the beginning was no, that word won't do. Like, and you can just see him laboring over. Jesus is so big, so grand, so glorious. How do I capture this? And these poetic statements is John's attempt of trying to cobble together just all of the glorious truth of who Jesus is and boil it down for us who are small and finite. And so he says, Jesus is the Word. The Greek word here is logos, and it means literally word or message, sometimes wisdom, but it also meant during that time logic or the the creative force behind the universe. The Greek philosophers of this time 
They were constantly trying to figure out what was the true logos. What was the true meaning behind the world? What really gave the world order and made it not chaotic, but beautiful and arranged? And John says Jesus is the Word, Logos. But John is also saying that Jesus is the Word, the Hebrew word, Devar. The original authors would have known that the Word was commonly used in the Old Testament in a phrase called the Word of God or the Word of the Lord. And this described typically when the Lord would act powerfully. It was always the Word of God that was acting in power. It was God's expression in creation. The Lord God spoke. And it was. Because His Word had power. It was the Word of God that revealed Himself. And it was the Word of God that powerfully instituted relationships like covenants that drew His people in. The Word of God was the expression, the outflowing of God's power. John is telling us, using both of these concepts, that Jesus is both the creative force behind the universe as well as the expression of God's very power. So what did this mean for Israel? What does this mean for the original hearer of John's Gospel? And what does it mean for us? Well, as we read the Old Testament, after the fall, after the brokenness of sin enters the world, we see man wandering around in the midst of death and evil and violence. But every once in a while, we see these powerful times where the Lord God Himself breaks into the story. Now, He's always there, always authoring and writing the story. But oftentimes, it's hard for our eyes to see Him. But every once in a while, He breaks in as the Word of God and does something powerfully. These moments, these personal revelations, what we oftentimes call these theophanies, these times where God shows Himself, like the burning bush to Moses, or the three men with Abraham, or the angel that wrestled with Jacob, or the pillar, the tornado of cloud and fire that led Israel. These times where God shows Himself. John's saying, that's Jesus. He's there in the Old Testament. He's powerfully working. He's coming into the story of broken humanity. And then we get to the end of the Old Testament and Isaiah gives us this beautiful promise that one day, Emmanuel, God with us, will come and be forever interjected into the story. And now we know that John says, He's here. The Word, the power of God. Those times where we see God just powerfully move into the midst of our broken story is finally fully here. The Word has come, John says. Now this title that John gives to Jesus should make us marvel at him, but it's only the prelude to the fullness of what John is about to say next. See, Jesus is not just the manifest power of God. John just clearly says Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John tells us that the Word is not just from the beginning, not just eternal, not just powerful, but He's with God and was God. John loudly declares Jesus is God. Now, I need you to hear this. This is one of the defining doctrines of our faith. It's the doctrine that our faith splits with many other false beliefs. There will be a lot of other people that will say that you and they believe the same thing, but they don't believe that Jesus was God. Perhaps he was a good teacher, perhaps he was a prophet, perhaps he was one of many gods, perhaps he was created by God above humans, but not quite God. And John says, no, Jesus is God, truly God here on earth. We talked about this last week. This means that Jesus has all the characteristics of God. He is sovereign over all things, authoritative in every way, shape, or form. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, lacking in nothing. He is omniscient, knows all things, omnipresent. He is everywhere, transcendent. He is above all things, beyond us. He's imminent. I'll slow down. I see some of you guys taking notes, which is good. He's imminent, which means he is active now, present fully. He is immutable, never changes. No change or variation, the book of James says. He's infinite, inexhaustible, both in his power and who he is. We will never get tired of learning of him. And finally, he is eternal. Always was, always is, always will be. I'll say it one more time so you guys can, if you lost one, sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, don't ask me to spell them, omnipresent, it won't happen, transcendent, imminent, immutable, infinite, and eternal. These are the characteristics of our God. As we said last week, when we see Jesus, we see God, which means when He cares for people, it's God caring for people. When he loves people, it's God loving people. When he calls people, it's God calling people to himself. When he serves people, it's God serving. When he sacrifices, it is God sacrificing. And when he suffers, it's God. But John also sets up another mystery here. And if your brain hasn't been full yet, I'm going to just slosh it around in mine too. Because John says that Jesus was God, and yet he was also with God. Jesus was God, and Jesus was with God. So, two questions should come to mind when you hear those statements that Jesus was God and was with God. The first is maybe this. Is John saying that Jesus is a God amongst multiple gods? And the answer to that is clearly no. The entire Bible is written from a perspective of monotheism. Again, lots of words. Take the ones that are good. Toss the ones that don't work. 
one God, monotheistic. Not many, just one. Israel's, one of their foundational prayers called the Shema comes out of the book of Deuteronomy and it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They would say it, they would bind it on their door frames. When they would leave the house, they might kiss where it was written and hung and they might repeat it to themselves. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one and He is our God. God repeatedly tells His people in the Old Testament that all of the other gods that are being worshipped by other people and sometimes by His own idolatrous people, they're not gods at all. They're fake. They're false. They're created with human hands, He says. There's one God. So Jesus is not a God amongst many. The second question that would probably come up as we read that Jesus was God and with God is, so is Jesus just another name for God? Is this God literally vacating heaven, coming to earth? Is Jesus just God showing himself in a different form? Right? Water, you take it, comes out of the tap as a liquid. If you then take it and you put it in an ice cube tray, put it into the freezer, it what? Freezes and becomes a solid. Same water, same water that came out of the tap, then freezes, put it on the stove, you can boil it, what happens? Turns into a vapor. We're getting English and science up in this mug today. Science, English, languages, history, theology. Gosh, I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. God did not show up in a different form. And here's why I know this. Throughout the gospel, we see Jesus praying to God. Jesus is not praying to himself. He doesn't get on his knees and say, oh, Jesus. All right, he says, Father, Father in heaven. He says that the Son, him, can do nothing apart from the will of the Father, God the Father. We see Jesus promise the coming of the Holy Spirit that he says is another, another like me, but is not me. So what is John doing besides confusing us? Well, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God himself. John is telling us that Jesus is God and that God, though one in essence, is three in person. We call this the Trinity. The Trinity, the word Trinity, first of all, you won't find it in Scripture. It's a word that theologians and church fathers developed like John in order to try and get their arms around something that, right? It comes from two words, tri, meaning three, and unity. If it was a Spice Girls song, you know where I'm going with this, when three become one, not two, which don't talk to your kids about that, okay? Three, one, try unity. The Trinity, it's a doctrine that expresses that our God has eternally existed as one in essence, one in being, one in substance, and yet He has also eternally existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is not three gods, He is one. And He is not simply one God who shows Himself in three ways. 
He is one God in essence and being, yet three in persons. It's hard to get our arms around, even harder to get our brains around. So let me tell you what the church father said. The Athanasian Creed, one of the first kind of doctrinal statements of the church, trying to just get their arms around what this meant, says this. The universal faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding, confusing the persons, nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. Here's the important pieces. One, there's one God. When Israel said in the Old Testament, the Lord our God is one, they confessed truth. We worship one God, one in essence, one in being, one in substance. And yet, this singular God has existed eternally in three persons. Three in personhood, three in roles, three in work, three in how we interact with Him even. One God, three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here, here, here again, two things that I need you to hear. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all truly God. When you see Jesus, you see God. When the Spirit comes, God comes. When Jesus prays to the Father, it is God. If you don't believe me, you can look at Scripture. Thomas, when he sees the resurrected Jesus, said to him, My Lord, my God. That was utter heresy unless Jesus really was God. Also, in Acts chapter 5, for the Holy Spirit, Ananias, we're told, lies to the Holy Spirit. And then it's repeated, Ananias lied to God. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all truly God, and yet the Father, Son, and Spirit are all distinct. The Creed says the Father is not the Son who is not the Spirit. The Father did not die on the cross. I had a pastor who was just lovingly patient with me. And afterwards, when I would pray sometimes out loud, he would just come and say, hey, listen, you got the Trinity a little mixed up in your prayers there. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, well, the Father didn't come and die on the cross. I'm like, well, God did. And he said, yes, God did. Jesus. I'm like, okay, my brain doesn't work that well. The Father did not die on the cross. Jesus did. The Spirit did not speak creation into existence. Jesus did. Well, the Jesus, the Word, the Father spoke. And we are not indwelled by Jesus. We are indwelled by the Spirit. Now, here's all this come to a head. One, God is really big. And when we say that He is inexhaustible, this is one of those things that if you try and get your hands fully around on this side of eternity, I will bet will exhaust you. 
but it also is really, really beautiful. The fact that our God is three in one actually is the foundation for some of the most beautiful doctrines of who God is and our relationship with him. We say things like on coffee cups, God is love. But if God is one in essence and one in person, who's he loving before the foundation of the world? We can say that God is love because he has existed from eternity past as one God in three persons and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have known an eternity of love for one another. An eternity of value and honor. And to say that we are invited into the love of God is to say that we are invited into the perfect love of our triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To say that the the Father invites us, adopts us into His family means that we are adopted into a relationship where we are loved like the Son and the Spirit. Perfectly. That we are invited into a relationship characterized by love and care and honor and value and service and joy. Because it's the only relationship that God had has ever known. To say that God has saved us means that the Father in heaven chose to send the Son to earth to give Himself for us, to defeat sin and death, and then to be resurrected by the power of the Spirit. All of the Godhead are intimately involved in our salvation. All eternally desired to save us. To say that we speak to God in prayer means that we are invited to speak to the Father as those who have access and the position of the Son and whose words are carried to the Lord by the Spirit. Maybe you don't know this. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. Jesus Himself says, pray to the Father in my name, and we are told in Romans chapter 8 that we pray by the power of the Spirit. Like those are not just words that we utter. And, and, and it's okay, listen, if you have not heard that before, uh, you're not at fault. The church is. We don't just do things to do things, but we pray to the Father that has adopted us in heaven. And not as rebellious children, not as sinful men. We pray in the name, in the position of the perfect, eternal Son, Jesus. That's why we go boldly into His presence. And then when we don't know what to pray, and we can just kind of moan, and that's the best, the words that we can come out, we are told that the Holy Spirit, by His gracious power, takes those utterances and presents them to the Father as the perfect prayer. Like, that's a good God, right? He's taking care of all of it. Our God is triune, three in one, and while it hurts our head, it helps our heart. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is God. And finally, John tells us that He is also the awaited Messiah. He goes on, he says, Jesus, the Word, He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
John, in verses 1 to 5, he uses all this like cosmic language, right? In the very beginning, the Word with God is God, created all things. Nothing was created without Him. He is the, the light and the life of all men. These huge, big, cosmic phrases. One thing the original hearers would have understood better than us that we oftentimes fail to grasp, that Jesus is not just my Savior, that Jesus is not just your Savior, but Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the Christ. That word literally means anointed king. They would have heard these words when John says that he, Jesus, was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. They would have heard this from Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. It goes on in verse 6. Here's our Christmas passage. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government. And of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will surely do this. One of the things that the church has gotten into a bad habit with in the last century or more, we're a Western people, we're individualistic in nature, and sometimes we tend to pigeonhole Jesus. That Jesus is just our personal Savior, and the most He really does is that He's come to forgive our sins. He has done that. Please don't hear anything other than that. He has absolutely done that. He has forgiven you your sins if you fall under the blood of His sacrifice. But Jesus is more than just a personal Savior. He did not come just to save individuals. He came to save the world from the power of sin and death, the bondage and wreckage and stain of sin. He came to fight and win a battle. He came to fight the war that we invited in through our rebellion against God. Jesus is not just a personal Savior. He is the anointed King, the great rescuer that Paul says in Romans 8, all of creation is groaning for. That's why he can say the rocks will cry out because they longed for his freedom as much as we do. And this matters. Because John, perhaps more than anyone else, paints some truly beautiful, intimate pictures of Jesus. John paints Jesus as meek and tender and low. And he is. But that tenderness and that meekness is not in opposition to him as the King of kings. As the Lord of Lord. As the great and powerful Messiah. In fact, when we see those two things together, it starts to reshape some things. Because we find out that Jesus 
fights not with violence, but through sacrificial love. And we find out that Jesus wins not by trusting in His own strength, but by trusting in the strength of the Father. And we find out that Jesus exalts Himself to the throne, not through pride, but by humbling Himself and submitting to the will of the Father. He's a king. And we must see Him as such. John wants us to look close at Jesus to see how He interacts with His creation, all the while never forgetting that we should fear Him. And I mean that as in we should be in awe of Him. I had a, a guy that I worked with who was French. Um, brilliant. Brilliant. Had like two PhDs in engineering that I, I don't even know how to describe. <clears throat> but he was not great with English. And he would always get words mixed up. And the, the two words that he got mixed up the most, and I didn't understand it until I started preaching on the awe of God, were awesome and awful. Like we, you know, like we go to like a the, like we went to we went to a Michigan football game. And he came with, and afterwards he was like, "Oh, that was awful." I was like, "What are you talking about, man? Michigan won." He was like, "Yeah, it was awful, full of awe." And I was like, "I think you mean awesome." Awesome, I think. And he's like, oh, okay. And, and I, here's, here's my, this is, don't look this up. This is not in a dictionary anywhere. This is just free for you, my theory. We love some awe. We love it. But full of awe? No. Scares the bejeebers out of us. Right? Awesome? Really good. Awful? Mm-mm. Jesus, full of awe. That's where we get fear of the Lord. That, not my suggestion, but fear of the Lord. We should fear Him. We should be in total awe of Him. Because the one who stoops down, that's the same one who created the heavens and the earth. This is Jesus. Jesus is the Word, is God, and He is the Almighty Messiah. So what do we do with that? Well, my grandfather uh, passed away, it's been about a year and a half now, is that right? Yeah. Um, my grandfather, who is my namesake, I am Michael John Collins III, okay, if you could start referring to me as thus, I would appreciate it, that or Bishop, Bishop Collins, I've always wanted to be as well. Uh, he was adopted, and so I always joke with people like, you know, like my name is on the moon, did you guys know that? Mm -hmm. Michael Collins on the moon. He was the pilot that flew Neil Armstrong to the moon. Neil Armstrong never would have made it without Michael Collins. Okay. Liam Neeson played me in a movie. Michael Collins also. This is just random facts for you. But, so people are like, oh, you're Irish then. You're like, Irish, that's like a super Irish name. And I'm like, well, I don't know because my grandfather was adopted. He was adopted into the Collins family. And my grandfather while being adopted, never knew about his biological parents. Uh, always, always wanted to, but he never knew them. Even up to his, uh, the, the death of his adopted parents, they did not tell him anything about his biological parents. And he long, des long desired to figure out who they were and what they were like. He wanted to know who he belonged to. And it ate at him. There was a part of him that always felt missing because he just didn't quite know. 
And, and I want you to hear this. You and I don't have to guess. You and I don't have to guess who we belong to. You and I don't have to guess where we come from. What the one who created us is like. John tells us who we belong to. John tells us what our God and our Savior is really like, and he tells us what he has come to do. And so from this first opening few sentences, for the rest of our journey through the Gospel of John, I pray that as we fix our eyes on Jesus over the coming months, as we marvel at his miracles, as we experience his tenderness, as we grieve at his betrayal and his arrest, his crucifixion, as we celebrate as his resurrection, that the Lord would keep in our minds and heart who Jesus really is. And that as we come to know who he really is, that the Lord God would give us and others life in his name. Let's pray.